You're listening to Liver Live Music Presents Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And I guess, Seth, we just have a, a couple more to do by phone. Is that is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Uh, I'm here in Mexico at At The Beach, the Avid Brothers gig. Just finished up my morning jacket. Uh, one big holiday. Got a lot to share with you all about that. And Rob is, where are you, Rob? I am in a secret location in the bowels of Decatur, Georgia. All right. Well, hopefully you're keeping I- that that location nice and clean. <laughs> hey, listen, you're going to update us on on what sounded like an amazing trip, but real quick, I wanted to uh, for the David Bowie contingent of our listeners, um a couple cool things have happened recently. First of all, a gentleman I want to have on a show, a drummer by the name of Woody Woodmansey. I don't know if you've heard that name, Seth, have you? Woody Woodmansey. I have not, Rob, no. Apparently the last surviving member of Bowie's legendary Spiders from Mars band, he's written a book Spiders from Mars, his life, my life with Bowie, and um, it really gives you an interesting inside look at, at David. And man, if the guy comes to, to Georgia, wouldn't it be great to interview him and get some inside scoop on, on the real Bowie? You know, what a genius he was and what a treat it would be to talk to someone who toured with him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, keep your eyes out there, Rob, for that. I know you, uh, I know you keep your eyes on the Internet, always looking for when those musicians are coming through Atlanta. I do, and David Bowie fans, get your eyes to rollingstone.com. The article's a couple weeks old now, but it was uh, how David Bowie brought Thin White Duke to life on Station to Station. It's interesting about how Bowie's at a really dark point in his life and is able to put all that aside and record this amazing Station to Station record and about how the character of the Thin White Duke kind of grew out of what Bowie was going through at the time. Rollingstone.com, how David Bowie brought Thin White Duke to life on Station to Station. Check it out, Bowie fans, even if you're not. It's a really interesting article. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Rob. And our listeners, I'm sure, appreciate your wealth of knowledge. Hey, it's my job. It's my job. Well, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, so, mi amigos, mi amigos. Mexico, si, senor, senoritas. Uh, Wow, let me tell you, my morning jacket's one big holiday. I've always said that next to Jam Cruise, that's one of my favorites, and there's a reason for it. The fan base is incredible, but man, do they bring it. The last night was one of the thickest sets I've heard. It was so elegantly performed it was uh, magical rock and roll uh i mean they went from like heartbreaking man into easy you know the commodores uh into into evil urges it was and everything with that said it was just thick and it was just heavy and just beautifully done and then soulful soulful thick you mean so so fully thick absolutely and then lock it yeah, and then uh, and then uh, exactly like like at Lockin, but this was this was special, and everyone I mean, not that Lockin wasn't special, but this this had a very special thing to it. I mean, you look around and everyone's energy was just up and hands in the air. And they encore with Victory Dance, and then um, they they go into another Brick in the Wall Part Two. Uh, go from there to what the world needs is now is love to end with one big holiday, and the crowd just went nuts, water in the air, everyone jumping. It was incredible. So music-wise, it was incredible. What an amazing event. And then on the activity side of it, the uh, things like that we did, we did a uh, charity fundraiser for Positive Legacy. It was the Griswold Poolside Casino. And the idea behind the Griswold Poolside Casino was just like the National Lampoon's Griswold Casino, but at the pool. Uh, So we had a station for Paper, Rock, Scissor. We had a station for Pick a Hand, uh, Guess a Number, War, etc. We had a couple games in the pool. 
uh, a good turnout. Like, I mean, over 100 people participated. People were hanging out. We had music going on with like the Griswold tunes and, you know, a station where we had shotgunning beer. I mean, just it was just shenanigans galore. And everyone bought in. And then all the money raised went to charity and the winners won tickets to Shaky Knees, uh, Rise Festival, uh, Rise Festival and... Um, Halloween as well. So, and there was a lot of other prizes too, but it was just so much fun and everyone's just having a great time. Uh, and things like bingo, you know, 250 people in the pool just, you know, finding music uh, on their cards, but having such a good time, singing along, rocking it out. Things like that are, are, are amazing and, and the memories are, are, are deep. So, one big holiday was definitely a, a, an amazing experience. Um, we, I had the pleasure of interviewing Deer Tick uh, at the pool. I do a thing called the LL Cool J. Oh, sorry, LL Pool J. Excuse me. I ruined my own <laughs> pun. What the hell? The LL Pool J Poolside I got to Broadcast. Hear a little, I got to hear a little snippet of this. Yeah, well, I th- Rob, what do you think? We should probably play a little bit of that at some point, huh? We have to get permission. I'm all about it, but you got to get permission for something like that. Rob, that's I take care of that. That's my job. You do the research, yeah. I do the business, right? Come on. No, I want to <laughs> see permission for what for what he says. <laughs> I want to see it already. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Let me. It, it took the piss right out of me, you know? So- <laughs> it's urine-related. <laughs> and it's funny. Uh, all right, so Deer Tick was hilarious and just just cracking people up at the pool because the interview wasn't like what we normally do on our podcast. It was very like it was very very mellow and kind of just the, the guys just wanted to have fun. They just well, wanted to have fun. Go ahead. Can Ryan. I also say, Seth, there, a band you I don't usually hear you raving about is the Avet Brothers, but um, you seem to be raving about them now. Well, so we're, this is their first event. 90% of the crowd, if not more, are new to Cloud9 Adventures. They've never been to one of these adventures. Now, mind you, I've done every single one. So there's a culture from everything that's involved in, in what we produce together We're here at Cloud9 Adventures. Um, so today was a great day. Uh, music-wise, first of all, they're, they're very... They're, their music is so sentimental and and really touches people. But to, today, this afternoon, we did a um, songwriting workshop with Scott and Seth, the two Avid brothers, the brothers of the brothers. Uh, we had we did this outside uh, up on um, on a terrace, and there was over a thousand people there. And they came out and they played a couple tunes, and then we did a Q and A, and I walked around and got questions from different people, and they spoke and asked. And the thing that uh, the guys were so warm to their fans and so open and honest and the questions that were asked uh were deep and meaningful and the thing i I saw in this crowd is i mean with not to compare because every band really has a unique relationship and the relationship with this crowd is that this band is a soundtrack to their lives this band their the words and their music they sing this music to their husbands they sing this music to their wives this music they, they sing to their children like everybody here has had uh, this music's brought people back their families back that have been fighting and now they go and see Avit brothers together and and it's healing healing music um there's 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 that to it so it's a it's a very interesting thing and and it was really awesome to uh, this is the first time that that members of the headlining act uh really did something like this most of the time it's uh it's members of the other bands the support acts and this was really really special and really gave um the fan base something nice but for me as a as an outsider who's seen the avid brothers from a punk band to what they are now um to, to understand it a lot better, and, and it, it definitely a whole new respect for them. Well, that's um, great to hear. Great to hear, man. But we better get on to, to Chris Mitchell now. We got a long and detailed, uh, excellent, uh, I think excellent, very enjoyable 
We got to stop calling our own interviews excellent, Seth. Well, uh, I, I will say this: I enjoyed interviewing Chris. I found him to be a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I learned a lot about. Not just you know his relationship with Humphreys. Listen, Humphreys fans, stick around. You'll definitely get some Humphreys nuggets out of this and experiences. But audio fans, people, music, live concert fans, if you want to know all the ins and outs of what goes on in that little you know box in the front of house, pay attention because uh, he, ta- he he really shares a lot of knowledge. And I, and I'd say at this point in my life, I've done a little over a hundred interviews with different folks over the years, and I think Chris may be. He's definitely one of the most intelligent people I've ever interviewed. To, to, at points, it seemed like he really had to stop and gather himself and just dumb it down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he thinks on another level. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, he's and he, a- hears, he hears stuff we don't hear, you know? He, he sees things in ways we don't see. Well, Rob, that's uh, that's absolutely right. And and you and I had the pleasure of being able to, at the Umphrey Show, put on the headphones and hear his feed and actually have him isolate different pieces for us and show us different things and... Uh, that, that was a roller coaster of a ride. Yes, he is very, very kind and generous. Let me in that soundboard. If there's room, and as long as there's not uh, band employees or tour gigs people, you know, if people need the room, I, I try to stay out of people's way. But as long as there's room, yeah, I love hanging out with him. He's a very funny guy. We we each dig each other's stories, you know, so that helps. And you can't talk to Waffle, you know, so at least I have something to talk to during the show. <laughs> not not that I'm looking to talk that much, of course. I'm usually looking for those headphones. That's dreamy, drippy stuff. To listen to Humphreys live, looking at the stage, listening to those headphones is just is as close to the nirvana as I get in the world today. That is just a really, really good space to be in whenever that's happening. And on that note, listen, other listeners, listening listeners that are maybe not the biggest Umph fans, but hopefully are now, Umph Month, this closes out our Umph Month, Month of Umph, and we've got a plethora of other music we'll be sharing with you all. Uh, throughout the next uh, months coming up. Yes, and in this episode, again, the music, the Umphreys music you will hear is from the Tabernacle in Atlanta uh, run in January. You can get that at livedownloads.com or umlive.net. Also, you'll hear some music from Acoustic Syndicate, Jeremy Saunders, and um, Daryl Scott, the wonderful, wonderful Daryl Scott. Yeah, Acoustic Syndicate. I miss those guys. I'm glad I'm glad that's back in rotation, and, and it's an honor to have them on our show, musically speaking. Uh, so listen, everybody, I keep saying listen because it's time to listen to... Well, it's great because we get to find out how Chris went from a, a guy who basically got into sound to impress this lovely woman, and I understand. I, I know her now, and she's, she's an amazing woman and just adores acoustic music, and I can see how why he ran out and bought... Well, as you'll hear in the yeah, story... Yeah, let, let, let everyone listen to it. Well, you, you, you also get to hear how he gets into the, uh, the Bay Area scene and then how that leads to the Umphreys position. So, here you guys go. Enjoy, and thank you so much for listening to Rob Talk.
Lifehouse Engineer who has worked with Acoustic Syndicate, the wonderful Tracy Chapman, Kataro, Old Crow Medicine Show, G Love Kataro? The yeah. the uh, yeah, I used to like hang out with crystals when I was in co- in high school, and that's not a girl crystal. I meant like you know energy, but that was that used to be the best stuff to get stoned and listen to. Anyway, I had no clue. That's really that's sushi cool. and massages. I'll have to trust back, you on back that. Back to you, Rob. G Love and Special Sauce, Mickey Hart from My Precious Grateful Dead, and currently is front of house for Humphreys McGee. We are privileged to have Chris Mitchell sitting with us here backstage at the Tabernacle. Hi, Chris. Hi, Rob. Hi, Zeth. Hello. Welcome to Inside Out. You know what you, you didn't mention? What's that? All his work at music festivals, too. That's where I think I first met you back mm-hmm. over the days with uh, Smile Fest, right? Tweener gigs. Yep, I did uh, God, any festival that, that needed a front of house guy or monitor guy. Or, or a guy. Or a guy. <laughs> and he's also worked with Larry Keel, and he also is very adept at rebuilding soundboards, correct? Everybody has habits. <laughs> And we were going to bring some cold cereal for you to eat, but uh, we couldn't. We didn't have time. I know you're a fan. <laughs> um, so uh, you talk about providing sonic bliss and in turn conveying the emotion and strength of the music you're mixing with alacrity, right? That's always the goal, right? So now we have a new technology to do so, and I think I believe you started doing it at the New Year's run in, in Chicago, correct? The surround sound. Uh, we've dabbled in surround sound a few times. Uh, couple of times at Red Rocks, we've done surround sound recordings, extra mics, different mixes. Um, but this is, uh, I guess, our, our third dip into it. Uh, but I'm putting a whole lot more effort into um, trying to find an immersive mix and uh, get a, a, a true 3D experience that you, you can't duplicate with just left, right, or even just headphones. There's a, a, a depth you get in surround sound that is... Uh, it's very engulfing and, and pleasurable. And you have two microphones pointed toward you in front of you, correct? Uh, they're actually on the balconies. Oh, they're uh, on the balconies. Each now. balcony has a pair. Uh, they're a few feet out, pointed uh, back at uh, the middle balcony is towards the back wall, and on the upper balcony, I'm pointing to the very last row. Uh, and you're kind enough to let me stand with you often at the shows, and last night, uh, while they were segueing into glory at a very quiet moment, you leaned over to me and you said, this is a point at which the surround sound will be particularly uh, beneficial. Can you explain why? Well, it was uh, one of those segues where they do it slowly. You know, it's not a, an abrupt, you know, on the one, it's the next song. Um, so I kind of knew that they were going into it. So as the chord changes happened, uh, I knew, okay, well, here's going to be the next song. There was a reduction in volume and playing, which gave room for the audience to gasp and notice pretty much in unison that hey they're going into glory and that the the diminishing sound of the band playing and then the crescendo and sound of the audience reacting uh is going to be a a forward to back movement in the surround sound that will it'll pull you into that moment of of realization uh because of the the enhanced source of of what's happening in the room and are you still planning on releasing one of these for free uh to gauge the interest level out there uh, we're going to throw some demos out there. Um, I don't think we're going to have uh, the, the bandwidth to put up a whole show, but uh, there'll be a few select, you know, one or two songs here and there uh, as we develop the process. And uh, we should have it all worked out by the summer, and we should be able to uh, uh, decide if we can get, you know, the, the channels worked out for distribution to actually figure out some way to sell a surround sound show just like you would a UM live show. What about um, with the... Uh 
live streams are, is it possible to get those that band around? that bandwidth is really hard uh-huh. uh it, it's a matter of having a a huge bandwidth up and then properly saying okay video gets this much audio gets this much and you know if it starts to drop <laughs> what do you do you know do you do you, you drop the video, video or do you go back down to stereo or it, it's a hard thing to do consistently night mm-hmm. after night and in some clubs it's great and easy uh in most it's a stretch and as I mentioned, and as our listeners, both of them know. <laughs> <laughs> One's in Indonesia, right? <laughs> That's right. We got one in Indonesia. Nice. Um, I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan. And Dan Haley, of course, is an amazing, was an amazing sound man. But I, I, I want to I ask you something about well, my first New Year's show. Tw- what would it be now? Uh, 19, I think 82, it was 22. 20-something 20 years ago. No, it was 1922, I think. <laughs> they had Tower Power <laughs> Horns and Etta James come out. Okay. And they, had a, a, they came out for the encore the 30th. And then they came out and did a whole set the 31st. And at the time, it was great, wonderful, and all that. And it was a historic moment. I still acknowledge that. But you go back and watch a video or listen to the recordings. Garcia's drowned out by the horns a good bit. And if you look at him, he's not, he's not pleased up there during that set. And they do the encore with <laughs> Broke Down without the horn. And the Grateful Dead after that never again played with more than one horn player on stage. Oh. Now, fast forward to Humphreys McGee New Year's shows. <laughs> Horn sections walk on stage in the middle of the set, and you have it mixed wonderfully right from the get-go. How do you do it? To what extent is it a change in technology, and to what extent is your skill? And feel free to be, uh, feel free to be forthcoming. Um, we have the advantage of uh, a quieter stage now than the dead would have had back in, in the day. Oh, um, the in-ear monitors. The in-ear monitors, uh, and the fact that Sadly, the guys in the Grateful Dead were known for loud stages. Um, everything had two speakers on it. Uh, everybody had one or two wedges in front of them. And a wall behind them. And a wall behind them and above them. And <laughs> uh, I mean, heck, Mickey carried a PA for himself. You, you, could, you could have taken his monitor system and stuck it in a 500-seat venue and had plenty. Whoa. <laughs> um, so there's that. Um, and then you get Tower Power, which they're known for their volume as well. So they're probably going to have six or eight speakers in front of them amplifying what they're playing back at them. So you've got a a loud horn section, B a loud horn section coming through a lot of speakers and it just, it rolls over itself. Um, we only had two speakers on stage. They were only facing the horns. Um, and then everybody else is on in ears. So that gives me the huge advantage there. Um, technology helps because, I can, you know, I have an entire recording studio's worth of gear built into my digital console where Dan, well, you know, he had some stuff, but he didn't have, you know, all right. these toys, right. uh, all these means of control. So uh, between those two, it's, you know, a, a lot of very fine steps of refinement that in the overall picture makes it a whole lot easier for me to, you know, grab four horns and stick them in a mix and know exactly where it should fit. And there's another way you distinguish from, from Dan Healy that anybody who reads Grateful Dead interviews knows that Healy had a computer program, would go into a, a room, they play the show, and then when he returned to the room, he would pick up from where he left off. Whereas you, when you go back to a room, you, you go to a clean slate. Can you talk about the decision point behind that? Um, or points? Oh, it's, it's fairly simple. Um, you learn from your mistakes. You also learn from your successes. So I've been to... You know, when I come to a room, I've been to a bunch of venues since then. So when I return to it, I have learned from all those 
venues in between small things that may help me retune the room better than when I did it the first time six months or a year or two years ago. And on that note here uh, at the Tabernacle, you're doing a three night run. So how's that, how's that come into play when you're, uh, you know, like is the third night pretty much cruise control for you in a lot of ways, or are you still now just changing a lot, changing things up even more? Um, when I approach a show, um, you have the transition from uh, the mix you established at Soundcheck, which is an empty room, to the mix you're going to have to establish for the first song in a full room. Uh, the Tabernacle is a, a huge example of that because you have a reflective floor that sounds one way empty and vastly different full. Mm-hmm. So I spend the first portion of the first song, you know, sometimes it's 30 seconds, sometimes it's three or four minutes. Uh, getting that that final polish on what was the soundcheck mix. Once I get that polish set in there, I can concentrate on mixing the show. I'm not fixing the show. I'm you know I'm creatively doing things. I'm pulling instruments up and down. I'm using effects appropriately in songs. I watch for solos, stuff like that. Um, so by the time a third night rolls around, there's usually not very much. Uh, things that go wrong uh, with tone or with volume uh, that, you know, they're, they're not going to pop up. Uh, I'm just, you know, following the band and reacting to however they're playing. Now, not only with Umphreys, uh, not only do you follow the band and do all this, but you're also the man in charge of the two, two things I noticed by, again, thank you for allowing us in your space last night, but I noticed that you're pressing some buttons. I'm like, what's that button? And I'm looking and it's like, oh, you're tracking the entire show for the recordings. And then in addition to that, you're also providing the mix for the unique Umphreys fan experience where the fans actually have these uh, wireless headphones and can listen to your it's headphones and snow cones. Really? Yes. And they pay a small fee, and then you can even walk to the bathroom and hear it. Yep. Yep. It's the, the soundboard mix, which um, the way I have my mixing philosophy set up, I'm, I'm mixing for the recording. I'm just happening to, I'm just happening to use the, uh, the speakers in the room as my local monitors mm-hmm. and inviting a bunch of people to hang out with me. So that recording mix you know, it works for uh, the headphone mix. It works for um, the web simulcast. It works for all the DVD recordings. Um, and the way I set up the mix to translate um, in a recording studio, um, all of those mixes, wherever you put them on whatever size speakers, they all sound the same. I think once every 10 shows they should offer, and you pay an extra 25 bucks, you get to hear the talk back too. <laughs> the conversations between the band members. Is there anything juicy ever in there? CIA answer one. <laughs> so anyways, um, Chris has a blog too. And if you're a sound engineer or interested in it, you should definitely read it. But even if you're not, his one that's called how to disappear completely is definitely readable for the, you know, layman like ourselves. Oh, cool. um, can you talk about corrective equalization? Why minimizing it is important uh, to what you do. And remember Seth and I are, you know, sonically dumb. So, you okay. Know. Uh, in 1960, some, some, the Beatles started using recording techniques that could only be used in the studio that could not be used live. The most uh, easy to, to realize is backward masking. In the recording studio, you flip the tape over, you play on it. It effectively records you backwards, blah, blah, blah. You can't do that live because you can't do that live. Colonel Bruce can. 
yeah, but that's just Colonel Bruce. <laughs> Touche. Um, so that was the advent of um, recordings that could occur that only existed on tape. That replaced the recording method of trying to get an exact image of what's happening. So something you could do live. Um, I chose the previous mix style to, to mix live so that I could try to achieve sonic accuracy. I wanted to achieve exactly what the, the band members are giving me. Um, there's a couple of ways that works out for me. It makes the recording sound better. It makes all the effort that they put into their instrument and shaping the tonality and the timbre, uh, it makes it translate. So, you know, if they have a, an extremely expensive guitar and a, a boutique amplifier that sounds a perfect way, I, I don't want to change that. I want to just make that louder. Well, like in Myers, the snare drum is flat. The snare drum is important to him. The snare drum's flat so he can hit it hard. Is that something that you have to make sure? Is, is, there, is, there, is that similar to this? Uh, Making that come through? <clears throat> no, I, I just want to, to accurately capture the way he's playing the drums. So that if you were to stand in front of his drum kit without any amplification and you capture, okay, that's what a drum kit sounds like. And then you walk out in front of the PA, it's just a bigger version of what you just heard standing in front of it. That's what I'm trying to capture is, is accuracy. Um, one way to get that ac- accuracy is for your brain to believe that nothing is going on. And if you hear, for example, distortion, crunchiness, think a la black keys, your brain knows something's being done to that sound. That's not an organic version of, of what you're hearing. Um, if you try to remove those things and go towards believability, the last thing you remove is corrective EQ. So you, you reduce your distortion down to nothing. You get the sound that you're recording to be the same as the sound that's being picked up. So you have accuracy in translation. If I were to use equalization to, you know, let's say it wasn't bassy enough or the high frequency was too bright. It had a, a, a spiky pitch to it. Um, if that was a result of the way that I was using a microphone to capture it, I could use EQ to fix that. You know, say, for example, the, the source did not have that problem, but the way I was picking up, I was getting that problem. Right. I could use EQ to fix that. Uh, I would prefer to use a different microphone that would have the correct response tailored to what I'm looking for. And you have found that. And right? I have found that. So I would not have to use EQ to fix that. The reason I don't want to use, to use EQ to fix that is because EQ uses small amounts of time feedback. So if you want to put a cut in something, uh, there's a little circuit that takes the original signal, feeds it back through a filter, and applies it to itself. So it's a little loop. Right. But that takes an amount of time to happen. And there's a little bit of a smear in there that you can hear if you really listen for it. But if it's not there, your brain is much more likely to believe that the source is true and not molested or distorted. It has a pure feel. It has a pure feel. Uh, those jazz albums where you can close your eyes and literally see the stage sonically in front of you. You know, you can hear the drums over here and you can hear the guitars over here and you know, you can hear the room breathing. That's all because it works as an accurate, non distorted, non time smeared 
fashion. Gotcha. And if you get in there and start playing around with a bunch of EQ, you can start to hear those records get artificial feeling. They don't. They feel like they're not in a real space. Like a lot of studio releases in the '80s, perhaps. Like yes, that. yes. All right. Well, let's go back to the beginning, Chris. Where were you born? Moxville, North Carolina. Moxville. I always like the name of that town. It's like they're making fun of the towns around them. <laughs> you got that right. And I, uh, grew, I grew up in Motsaville. Motsaville. Mm-hmm. Oh, that took some balls. I grew up in Mitzaville. I do mitzvahs. But anyways, um, what was the young Chris like? You didn't get into sound until a later day. Were you a music fan, though, when you were young? Oh, yeah. I was a big music fan. Um, I grew up in um, uh, another small town in North Carolina in the 80s. Uh, we were all into metal and BMX bikes and well, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you ended up in the Navy. What was what was the decision point on that? What motivated you to go into the Navy, and how long were you in the Navy? Uh, uh, I realized I needed some sort of college degree. I was not looking forward to loans. And if you go in the Navy, they give you most of a degree, and and they pay for it. So GI Bill and all that stuff. Uh, I was in for a couple years, um, nuclear power program. Should have been in for a few more. Uh, ended up getting out early for me- medical reasons. Um, but they taught me uh, electronics. They taught me uh, troubleshooting and, and how to fix things. So I, I took that and, and so ran. Those things that are fuel that benefit you to this day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What were the best and worst things about the Navy? I guess that would be the best. What are some of the worst things about being in the Navy? It's just a podcast. You can running in the rain at five in the morning. Oof. Yeah. Are the drill sergeants? Uh, get up, 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 I want to separate fact from fiction because on the Humphreys McGee website, it mentions that you, your wife, uh, you met her, what's her name again? Kelly. Kelly. And that you met her and th- told her that you were a sound guy and then went and ran and learned sound. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, that's pretty much. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> Females um, can be a great motivation, can't they? She was in a band. Um, I was kind of hanging around when they were having a meeting in a coffee shop about what they should do about their upcoming shows. And I kind of inserted myself into the conversation and said, uh, hey, you guys need a demo. I'm going to four-track. We can record you something. So you know, right after that, I went and bought a four-track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how long did it take you to learn how to use it? A couple weeks, a few days. I don't know. So how do we get from there to working for Acoustic Syndicate? Um, the four-track turned into an eight-track, turned into a small recording studio in my house, turned into recording bands in Boone, North Carolina, uh, during the 80s, excuse me, 80s, 90s, wow, that's a Freudian slip, Uh, recording bands in the 90s, and uh, one of the bands wanted me to come out and uh, mix a live show from where they were playing in town, Uh, figured out that I I liked mixing live much better than I liked mixing for a studio, and started picking up gigs. Um, I met Acoustic Syndicate at a at an outdoor festival uh, in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Murrah Watson Festival? No, a much smaller one. Uh, same town. 
um, oh gosh, I don't remember the name of the festival. It was like a, a thousand person in the woods kind of thing. Okay. Um, mixed them there. And then a few weeks later, they were playing up in Boone at the club I was working at. So I mixed them there. Uh, one thing led to another and I went on the road with them. I miss that band. They were, I, I, I don't know if they're still even around, are they? Uh, they do uh, about a dozen shows a year. Um, they still play the Visualite and the Gray Eagle and a few others. That's what Big Daddy's Big the lead Daddy, guy, Yeah, right? I was just thinking. Steve he has, he has uh, quite the voice. Oh, that he does. Well, look out, Mama, there's a white bus coming up the river. It's got a big red beacon and a flag and a man on a rail. I guess you better call John, cause it don't look like they're here to deliver the mail. And it's less than a mile away. I hope they didn't come to stay. It's got numbers on its back and a gun and it's making big waves. How do you end up Tracy Chapman and Katara? I mean, oh, um, once I got out to the West Coast working for Mickey Hart, um, I got involved in sound companies in that area, and yeah, you so hand out business you, cards and the phone rings and you say yes or no. So then, I guess the question is, how did you get to the West Coast to work for Mickey Hart? Uh, Jason Brodsky, um, friend of mine in Asheville, North Carolina, he. Uh, he had the front of house gig working for Mickey and we had crossed paths when he was working for the string cheese incident. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, and he called me up out of the blue one day and said, Hey, I've went through a bunch of guys. You're next on the list. Do you want the gig? I said, yes. Now the obvious challenge there, miking those percussion. I mean, the one time I saw him, he opened the show playing a tree. Oh um, Yes. Were you on that tour? Yes, two dolphins fucking. <laughs> yeah. That's what we call that sculpture. <laughs> he had a different name for it. But but what about the challenges of miking all that percussion and making it sound even? I mean, is that some of the most challenging work you've ever done? Oh, yeah. Um, Mickey would uh, go back and forth between what we call the arti- artistic tours, uh, like Global Drum Project, Planet Drum, uh, and then the rock and roll tours, uh, Mickey Hart Band, uh, Rhythm Devils. Et cetera, et cetera. It's all good. All Mickey Project. As a matter of fact, he, he probably, as much as I love Bobby and Phil, Mickey does the most interesting stuff of the post of the four remaining members in his projects, I believe. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't aware that you liked Bobby. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Mickey, uh, Mickey likes to throw curveballs. I mean, it, it was a, a very interesting challenge. You know, you're basically, uh, Part-time psychologist, part-time sound guy, full-time fireman. You ever seen him play straight drum, drum kit? Yes. Uh, Obama inauguration, uh, the party that we did. I was there. 
Yeah. Well, we, uh, my wife and I were selling merchandise. And, oh, but that reminds me. She asked me to f- find that photo. But we, we sold the merch, and then we snuck on downstairs to that set. That was awesome. What do you yeah. think of a straight kid playing? <laughs> um, That's, we're Mickey is a great percussionist. Oh, he's one of the best percussionists I've ever seen in my life. Um, uh, his, his, his foot technique was better when he was a younger man. Well, it's funny because there was the Further Festival in 1996, and they were doing the, the jams at the end. Yeah. And early on, they did a couple with him on Straight Kit, and that, that came to an abrupt halt about three shows in. So I yep. found that was interesting. Yep, and uh, his kick drum was never mic'd. And one more. Does he, do you see his temper flare up ever? Mickey is very passionate about his art. He doesn't like it when he perceives things that impede him in his art well said so that stick that's uh ingrained in your head there that's that's not from him uh i never had a stick thrown directly at me <laughs> you know one thing about mickey uh that i that matthew grateful, kelly has the grateful dead 50 in chicago one thing i noticed that that just really you know this image stand uh, sticks in my brain here um mickey just felt from looking at it it looked like he felt like in his natural habitat to be in that big space, you know, to be, be in uh, a stadium. He, yep. he seemed like that, 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 that's normal. Like that's, that's his, that's his space. And he, he does really well with that much space. Uh, yep. Um, he likes playing the part of the musical gladiator. How exacting was he with how he wanted things from you? Would he go back and listen to the recordings and was he really constantly giving you feedback? Uh, when I was working for Mickey, I was doing monitors for him. So you're getting ongoing feedback. Yeah, my my feedback was real time, um, and usually for you know a few hours after the show. Is monitor work boring? Oh, I'm sorry, go on. Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, honestly, working with Mickey, it was it was the preferred position because there wasn't a recording of what I did. Right. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, I had immediate feedback, whereas the front of house engineer, his feedback was after the show and, and critiquing something that may not have actually happened in the room, but only on the recording, stuff like that. Um, but doing monitors for Mickey, it was great. And go ahead. No, no. You, and you replaced fine. Kevin Browning front of house engineer. Um, how did Kevin find you? Um, were you, were there any reservations initially about joining it and, and getting tied to a project or was it like, go, go, go. Uh, I had recently finished, um, a project with Mickey and he was taking some time off. So, um, you know, it's one of those things you're always looking for the next thing when you're a freelance guy, which at the time I was freelance. Um, I had known Kevin from, um, the times when I was working front of house for various festivals and Kevin would come through with Humphreys and I would be his front of house systems tech or house engineer. Et cetera, An actual et nice sound engineer, not the traditional, you know, black shirt, go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, I, I saved that for the, the corporate shows um, So yeah, Kevin would uh, show up from time to time And, and we became good friends uh, When I was out mixing Acoustic Syndicate We would sometimes be playing at the same venue or festival uh, That uh, Unfreeze would be at And Kevin and I would hang out uh, I remember one of the first times we met was at uh, The Three Rivers Festival in Columbia, South Carolina 2000, 2001, something like, probably 2001. Humphreys um, played right after Syndicate on a Friday evening, Saturday evening, something like that. And Kevin and I hung out in front of the house and chatted for 
hours. Had a few beers, you know. Well, talk about the challenges of going from freelance. So you kind of come in and you, you mix the sound and it's a mix and whatnot. But then when you take on a project like Umphreys, now it's not just mixing. You have to learn this music. And so if you go from acoustic syndicate and you have more longtime gigs, longstanding gigs, it's got to be challenging for, for, well, just, yeah, curious to hear your, how, what those challenges might be. Um, the biggest challenge of it was, was getting the music down. Uh, there's so many things that are um, written, orchestrated, planned, that are intermixed with things that are not. So I had to figure out, you know, what was the song and how the song could lead into other songs and the balance of things in that song. Um, for the first six months before every set, Joel and I would sit down and track out who sang what, who had the, the lead, who sang what harmonies, and how that changed throughout the song. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of homework there. Uh, but then there there reached a point where that became intuition and I went on to the next step of making that mine where I would I would take sonic ideas that I had on how to present what they were playing and figure out how I wanted to do it so that uh, it would be the way I wanted it. And thank God they keep it interesting, right? They Last year performed over 300 different songs. They improvise almost every night. Um, did, did you feel it would be hard to work for a band that spews out the same show every night and almost has a recital? That would be hard. Um, I've been lucky enough that uh, all the acts I've worked for have been fresh set list every night acts. Even G-Love? Even G-Love. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's a shorter set of fresh set list, but, you know, he had, <clears throat> he had uh, a couple hundred songs he could choose from. And he would have, you know, four or five core songs that would get played every night, and then he would mix it up. And he would improvise a lot? He would improvise some. Uh, G-Love was, uh, was much more about the show than the music or the musicianship. And he's a phenomenal musician. Don't get me wrong. And, he, and his band always has good, good players. Yes. Uh, but he likes the show. You know, he, he's there to swoon. Uh, let's talk a minute about gear. Uh, so some folks that are listening may be a little bit more into the world of audio. Uh, what, 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 is, what board do you use? Um, First and foremost, the, the microphone company that has, with the, what we were talking about before, eliminating the... Um, Earthworks. Yes. Yes. Earthworks is huge for you, right? Uh, yeah. Um, Earthworks is, uh, in my opinion, you know, it, it's like a camera guy having the best camera with the most perfect lenses. Um, or a, a painter wanting, you know perfect brushes and paints. Uh, my, my work begins with microphones and ends with speakers. So I want to make sure that, you know, I have the best possible way of picking up what I want to pick up um, in the most accurate way with, with the best tonality and Earthworks gives me that. Any other? Go ahead. No, yeah. And uh, what, what kind of board are you using? Uh, currently using a Midas Pro X. I'm a, a big Midas fan from way back in the analog days. So when uh, we had the opportunity to go to Midas Digital, uh, we transitioned to it, and uh, we have a pair of them on stage. We have a pair of them, one on stage, one in front of house, and love them both. Yeah, so when you step in with Humphreys, to what extent are you bringing your stuff, and to what extent are you working with what they already had? Um, when I came on to work with them uh, in 2011, I brought in uh, a handful of my favorite microphones, a few pieces of outboard gear, effects processors, et cetera. Um, 
using uh, the consoles that the band owned that we eventually upgraded. And then uh, um, grew the microphone collections to, 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 to suit what we wanted. So probably, you know, three quarters of the mics I brought in. Uh, the rest of the stuff the band owns because, you know, they allow us to purchase whatever we need to get the job done. And now you're in front of this band nightly <clears throat> where fans come in one night, they leave, their ears are ringing. No, no offense to you, just, you know, you're a rock and roll show. Um, how do you protect your ears? And uh, still and still be able to hear the band well. Well, I have to, to draw parallels back to the nuclear power days. Um, you have to treat sound exposure in the same way you treat radiation exposure. It's an amount of energy over time. So if you go into a, a, a loud show, um, you want to limit the amount of exposure when it gets into the, the realm of being dangerous. But it's a rock and roll show, so you want it to be right on the edge of that. So I, um, I have monitoring devices. I have measurement microphones put up so I can uh, monitor and stay in, in what I consider to be a safe area. Um, but personally, since I'm there night after night, my amount of exposure is higher. So I use uh, earplugs manufactured by Sensophonics, a company we use in Chicago. They make all of our in-ear monitors. Um, the ones I have have a 9 dB reduction. So it's just a, a small amount of reduction without, <clears throat> excuse me, without changing the, the tonality of what I'm hearing in the room. So, um, so it's not the uh, level of, let's say, uh, someone that's like outside of an airplane. Right, right, right. Um, numerically, uh, I usually run my show around 101, 102 dB A-weighted. Um, and then if you were to average that over five minutes, uh, which they call that LEQ, um, the LEQ5, for my show is uh, about 100 dB. And while the band's performing, I noticed you're able to talk at points, you know, because you've got everything set up. But you also do adjustments other than just the tracking as they go. Can you give us a couple songs where that's an extreme version and maybe where it's fun for you, where you have to do a lot of stuff? Um, and what the stuff you have to do is? Well, one of the most obvious, uh, the song Resolution. Sure. Um, there's the point in the chorus where... <laughs> Uh, we call it the devil voice. Um, <clears throat> I remove uh, Brendan and Jake's uh, original vocal, um, and then I pass that through an effects processor that drops it down, adds distortion. Uh, there's pitch shifting. There's some chorusing going. I, you know, the basic low pitch sound like the devil kind of thing. Uh, and I replace the original with that for half a verse, and then bring the original back in. Um, that's one of the more extreme versions of what I do. Or uh, if they cover Led Zeppelin and I have to put a phaser on the drum kit or you know, things like that are, are, are big ones. Um, well, last night they covered Tool. Yeah, 46 and 2. What, what's some of the stuff you have to do? Which That was brilliant. Brilliant cover. Uh, I'm really lucky because uh, Jake and Brendan and Joel all try to give me the, the studio produced version of what would have been played by the original players. So I don't have to do anything to the guitars or the keys. Um, drums are pretty much drums. I only have to affect a vocal so it sounds like the effect that Maynard had used in the studio. So there were three different effects going on there in parallel that I would bring in and out depending on if it was the chorus or the verse. Um, and I had to review the original song to know which was where. But do you have the uh, the effects and the balance of them worked out in advance or is that something you have to do on the fly? That's it's all mixing on the, on the fly. fly? 
Yep. Uh, I only use one scene, so there, there's no uh, preset balance between things like you would use a scene for. Um, some mix engineers do that so that you know they can recall it exactly the way it was the last time. The guys in Umphreys do so much improv that it's never the same as it was last time. Even when they try to make it the same as it was last time, it's not the same as it was last time. So I mix it on the fly. I mix it uh, in real time with, with what I'm hearing. And sometimes, you know, next time they do 46 and 2, the, the effects may not be exactly the same they were. I'm, you know, I, I dial it up on the fly. What about that Nine Inch Nails song that they covered? Do you, do you have to do anything special for that to get that Reznor sound? Uh, I, I did a bunch of research and found out what that Reznor sound was, and, and, and I have it dialed up in a, a patch in my effects processor. So uh, I can recall that patch and then send whatever vocal I need to the reverb processor to, to take care of it. And what about when they pick up acoustics in the middle of a set? Okay. No problem. Nope. Because, you know, I go to some shows, you've been playing electric, and then I pick up the acoustic and hear... <laughs> Never in Humphreys. Never. Uh, I, I'm really, I'm very lucky because our monitor engineer, Bob, is phenomenal. Uh, he takes care of the stage. I never have feedback issues. Uh, everything works. He's, he's just a tremendous asset on stage. And because of that, my job's a whole lot easier. Um, the acoustics are just uh, another thing I have to, to put into the, I call it the decibel stack. Um, quick side note. One of the ways I approach mixing is you have to take a look at the dynamic range of all the things you want to mix together. For example, the dynamic range of a drum kit. Uh, the quietest you can have would be like playing a snare with a really light roll as compared to playing the whole drum kit as hard as you can. So you have that dynamic range. An electric guitar, uh, the quietest you could have is just right above the noise floor that you can barely hear, and then the loudest is when you turn it up to 10. So those two di d dynamic ranges are different. One of the key parts to mixing is to manipulate the dynamic range of both the drum kit and the guitars so that they sit in the mix with the same amount of range relative to each other. So that when the guitar gets quiet, it's not lost in the volume of the drums. But when the drums get loud, they don't overbear right. other things in the mix. But that's not, compression's not involved in that at all? It is. But, but you, ha isn't you have to be compression your enemy, sort of, too? Yes. Comp compression changes tone if used in a traditional manner. So how do you resolve that? I don't use it in a traditional manner. And to learn more about that, you'll have to go to his Yeah, I don't want to get too, too technical, but the <laughs> blog is excellent. If you are a sound engineer at all, look up Chris Mitchell's blog. We will tweet uh, some examples from the show website when this, when this episode is released. Uh, to answer that last question, in the blog, there's a, a parallel subgroup compression article that, that covers that. Okay. If I had a blog, it'd just be called, go for it, Rob. Depression. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so speaking of depression, it's always depressing when a show ends. And when the show begins, the middle of set break, and when a show ends, are you responsible for the house music? Mainly. Sometimes you let someone else pick it. Sometimes I let someone else pick it. Um, sometimes I have to play something you know, for a reason. You know, New Year's, you, you, you play a, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, 
And then, you know, for the last show of the tour, you play Ozzy, Mama, I'm Coming Home, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, everything else. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I try to put a lot of effort into picking uh, pre-set break and post-show music. Let's talk about the Aragon Ballroom. Okay. There are things to like about it. The staff is nice and the, it's very ornate in there, but okay. the sound is rough in there. But somehow you had it dialed in, certainly from the soundboard to the front and even in the back at parts. What are some of the challenges? What are the things you do differently to make a difficult sounding room such as that sound good? Um, choose the right speakers to put in there, where to hang them from and how to aim them. That's it. That's and it. is it trial and error? Are you shifting when you're sound checking the first night? Are you moving the speakers around? Um, the last 5% of what you have to figure out is trial and error. You can predict the first 95%. Um, in the same way when you go to the optometrist and you can kind of get your prescription close, but you have to do the, which is better, A or B. Right. I get so confused. I always feel like I'm making a mistake. And then I, then, and then I get the glasses and I can't see and they're like, why? And I'm like, well, I, I didn't want to. I should have chose sure. B. Uh, yeah, that, that last bit of audio is similar to that. When in doubt, choose C. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, technology, uh, being able to, to have the right tools sonically, speaker-wise, uh, in that room to fix that problem. If it was your call, would they ever play Aragon Ballroom again? If it was your call? If it was my call? Um, I don't hate the place. It has history. Certainly. It has a, a nice vibe. Uh, I don't think it's the best sounding room in Chicago, but it's not the worst sounding room in Chicago. Okay. Uh, Fair. So uh, we made it a point to to put the right PA in there, and I was happy with the results. And if they wanted to do it again, we could certainly put on a great show, and uh, it would sound just as good. So management, uh, after a show like that, management listens to you guys talk, discuss things like that and are able to actually make some of those changes happen? Like getting, uh, getting the right PA into the yes. venue? Yes, uh, we we don't even have we don't think about it as management anymore because everybody involved is a sound guy at one time or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask is that does is that helpful? Oh yeah, to, I mean, <laughs> yeah. To, all bands don't have that sympathetic ear in their management that people who have a history in sound, right? Oh, does that it, help it's you? It's unheard out? of. It's it's unheard of. And the unheard fact of. That, that's good. Like that. uh, the fact that uh, the only other person I have to worry or, or to have you know any opinion from is Kevin and Kevin. You know, he's the one sound guy. So he gives you There's feedback? There's not like six of them. Um, I wouldn't call it feedback. Uh, it, it's, it's constant um, constant conversation between us. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm pushing him. He's pushing me. We're, we're trying to make the Umphreys experience the best it can be. And uh, uh, it's all positive. Talk, um, talk more about Kevin and, and, and how he handled the transition and, and you know, how oh, he has... Oh, it's great. Re- um, he called me up one day and, uh, well... For a long time, we would bump into each other, and he would say, someday, I'm going to retire and call you out on the road. Yeah. Um, there were uh, a few shows they did in Jamaica, the first uh, Jamaican holidays. Uh, Kevin called me down to do uh, production management and mix the opening bands, kind of babysit front of house, et cetera, et cetera. And he told me again, one of these days, I'm going to call you up, well... Later that year, he called me up and said, so, I'm transitioning into management. You want a gig? And I was like, yeah. Um, I could not have you know, picked a better gig to, to go into. Uh, I love Humphreys you know, from a band point of view, from a musician point of view, 
uh, the way they produce their live shows, everything. You know, I've always been a fan. And to have had that opportunity, it felt like handed to me. It was incredible. Um, and then Kevin was uh, the most helpful he could have been because, you know, it's not like he was going anywhere. He was just transitioning to, you know, being in Chicago as opposed to being on the road. So everything was extremely helpful. You know, it was um, hand-holding where necessary, confidence-building where necessary, pointing out, you know, this, this, and this need to be that, that, and that. But never any stress, never any animosity. Just I could not have had a better transition into this. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. With regard to tone, where does Jake Sinninger rank? Gurr. I know. I always mispronounce it. Jake. Just Jake from At least he got the name right. (laughs) Like the guy on the left, the one who shreds. Sorry, he, sometimes Rob has a tendency to play, "Hey Bob," and it's like John. Uh, Actually, Seth had his first uh, MC well, let's gig. Let's not talk about that. Seth had let's his first about... MC gig, and the first thing he did was get the guy's name wrong. <sighs> yeah. So, by the way, if you would like Seth yeah. to get the wrong name for, of your, get your name wrong at your events, you can look him up online. I think we're going to do our first editing of this show. <laughs> <laughs> show. <laughs> but, uh, but talk about Jake and Tone. Uh. Jake has the best tone of any guitar player I've ever worked with. Jake has the best tone of any guitar player. Well, you've seen Mark Knopfler. Is he as good as Knopfler? Yeah. Wow. Well, Mark Knopfler makes Mark Knopfler's tone. Jake Sinegar can make Mark Knopfler's tone. Hmm. Now we got to call Mark and see if he can uh, make Jake's tone. Counterpoint. Well, Jake can make anybody's tone. Go on about Jake. More about it. Well, between you know, the rig he has, his, his selection of guitars, pedals, and amplifiers, he can come up with anything sonically. You, know, you want him to sound like any guitar player ever. You pick it. If he doesn't know it already, he'll have it figured out in a few minutes, and he'll be that guitar player. It's like sound check, do you guys play around like that sometimes? Always constantly, you know, dabbling in this song, dabbling in that song, you know, whatever he was listening to the night before makes it into whatever he's practicing for sound check. Hmm. Um, but, you know, more than that, Jake, he has that chameleon ability with his tone, but the tones he generates for, for his choice, you know, original songs, uh, are just as unique. It's not like he's, you know, copying someone else's uh, way to approach that song he he stays in veins and he uses you know if, if it's a medley song he'll he'll have a medley type approach to his tone but he puts a lot of effort into it and he can he can recreate anything um organically without the need for digital processors that manipulate it in a way that would sound like it was digitally manipulated i don't even know the extent to which you work with them in the studio I don't. At all, ever? I don't like rewind buttons. Even when they played, uh, went to Abbey Road, did, did you go with them? The coffee was incredible. That was it, but you <laughs> did go with them. I sat on the linen shitter. <laughs> yes, we learned about that in Brendan's yeah. interview. <laughs> John John. That put it all together right there. That was great. <laughs> did you talk with the engineers there? I did. I got to hang out. Uh, I touched the gear. Um, what was I, your takeaway? A coffee oh, mug, God. apparently. Other than music, musical takeaway. Uh, it's a very special place. There's a, there's a vibe. You know, some places have it, some places don't. That place has it. 
But I mean, did you discuss anything with them sonically? Did you get? Were you enlightened? Uh, did you enlighten them, perhaps, on things? Uh, no, I just absorbed. I, I was I was total fanboy. I know, I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're running out of time here, but um, just a couple things before we leave. Larry Keel, one of my all-time favorite musicians, as I told Speak you, mine too. I gushed on him on Jam Cruise. La- Larry's uh, he uh, during Strings and Souls said he would love to come on our show. Yeah, by we're the way, he's in Atlanta, so we'll definitely. Uh, Deli said, "Hey, <laughs> can you talk about mixing him and talk about why he's such a wonderful musician?" <clears throat> um, he is a dragon playing acoustic guitar. He breathes fire. He can play the most delicate guitar medleys on an acoustic instrument you've seen, but then again, at the same time, shred it like it's you know heavy metal. Um, his choice of chordal progressions and modes and rhythmic components are you know, he, he's 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 like a classical musician. He he takes everything from everywhere and puts it into what he wants to be as beautiful music. Now you've worked more Watson festival, correct? Yes. Do you still work it to this day? From time to time, if schedules permit, what are the challenges there with the, with the artists coming and going, uh, 15 minute changeovers. And you just got to, you sound check on the fly. I mean, how, how do you do it? They hit the stage. You just got to mix as they're yep. starting. Do you get, you get any prior sound check to, for any estimating of stuff? Well, you be, you're, you're prepared in a particular way that is unique to that festival. Um, there are certain ways of doing things and approaches that, you know, they, they kind of standardize a few things, but you have to be able to have your gear well-tuned and mix on the fly and, you know, you either, either keep up or you don't. Is it a fun challenge or is it a team? It's a great challenge. I love it. You ever, um, you ever mix Tony Rice? Yes. So... When the band has to get real quiet for someone to solo, do you have to adjust to that as a sound man? Yes, uh, pushing levels, um, leads as they call them, so that uh, it's usually the most artistic and the most challenging part of, of putting together a mix is trying to determine volume-wise who is the loudest in the mix, who is the mid of the mix, and who is the base of the mix, so that everyone is heard but a little bit more focus, interest, volume is, is on the person who is doing the lead or the solo or the main part of the melody. And let me ask you this. Have you ever pumped up the volume to drown out a chatty audience? I was literally just thinking the same. Are you serious? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mike well, Doty. Watson Fast Media thinking that? <laughs> uh, Mike Doty at Ziggy's. What's that? Mike Doty at Ziggy's. Um, there was a chatty audience, and he actually made a comment uh, across the mic, you know, for the room to uh, STFU. Uh, and in, for those that res- didn't know that, shut the fuck up. Yeah. So in response, yeah, I did that. Excellent. Well, we don't want to tell you to shut the fuck up. Yeah, and we know you got a sound check to go to. Uh, so. But we re- really appreciate your time. And, and really, this has been awesome. It really well-rounded uh, Umphrey's uh, experience here. Now we've got light, we've got sound, and we have artists. So... If anyone doesn't know Umphreys now, now they do. But now they also know you, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. And we'll get to the other guys very soon. Fun. Promise. Sweet.
And there we have it, Chris Mitchell. Giving us some time as uh, just before soundcheck. He really squoze us in, uh, cleared us up a little time. And uh, I don't know, I learned a lot. Did you learn a lot, Seth? I certainly did. That was that was definitely an, a fun interview. I like doing the uh, industry interviews and technical interviews, if you will, um, with the lighting designers and the audio engineers. We've got some other stuff up coming up in a couple of weeks that uh, that we're going to keep on with the uh, industry side as well. Hey, Seth, I'd love to interview the head of security at something like Bonnaroo or Locken, one of the major festivals. Uh, Carl Monzo with NES actually uh, is going to sit down with us at some point. Maybe. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He and I were talking a little bit ago, and uh, he's definitely happy to sit down with us. And some talk of maybe a big gigantic being on our horizon. I've, I've been di- t- dipping my toe into their music a, a good bit, trying to refamiliarize myself. We're hoping that that one works out. If that doesn't work out at the Georgia Theater here coming up, we'll definitely some point in the future. Uh, but, um, but we do have a confirmed interviews coming up. You want to tell everyone about what's coming up that's confirmed, Rob? Well, yes, and we have, we're going to continue every other week doing main episodes. The next two, I believe, will be Al Schneer from Mo and then Jim Laughlin from Mo. The tweener episodes are still up in the air. We want to use those to highlight our interviews, uh, some of which we've released and some we haven't. And I don't know, we're going to bang our heads together on that one, huh, Seth? Absolutely. And also, we're going to be uh, dipping into a little bit more with Live for Live Music uh, and um, some, of the, some of their staff and bring, bring them in and, and actually hear... Uh, Hear from them about some of the articles that they're writing, some of their experiences, etc., and um, and preview a lot more of what's going on in that world. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. Well, hey, you know, everyone, thank you for listening. This was probably one of the longer ones that we've had in a little bit. So we're going to leave you with some music, and we hope to hear you. Uh, hope to have you back next week. And by the way, next week I'll be back in Atlanta. So Rob, we'll be doing this face to face, baby. About time, and this, speaking of Atlanta, this closing song was truly one of the highlights of Humphrey's recent run at the Tabernacle in Atlanta. And now you're listening to Atlanta Sports Radio with Rob Turner. Rob, please tell us your final observation of the Atlanta Higgins! Higgins, sir!
It's a problem you can't reject So you learn to bite your tongue
Let's go. 